let's open up our Bibles, if you got one, and if you don't, find one. And we're going to open up to Ephesians in chapter 4, and uh, move just a little further. Further up and further in, shall we say. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, and we are beginning in the middle of a sentence. We are to be those who are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Lord, we ask this morning that you would speak to us from your scriptures. This book is alive, it's active, it, it has crystallized your power and made it available in beautiful ways. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would send your word forth and that it would do whatever you have purposed for it to do among us this morning. Let it correct us, let it encourage us, let it in rebuke us, let it train us in righteousness, and let us be different when we walk out than how we were when we came in. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, last week I ended on a point that I wanted to make clearly, and I'm not sure that I succeeded. Um, so I'm going to try again, just because repetition can't hurt, and you forget 95% of what I say within a couple of days anyway, according to the statistics. So I'm going to remind you, and I even gave you a paper to help you remember this week. Uh, since we transitioned into Ephesians chapter 4, we've been on the subject of Christian unity or unity in the body of Christ. But of course, chapter 4 doesn't stand alone. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. Chapter 4 is a logical conclusion uh, that comes out of chapter 3. It grows naturally out of what was said in chapter 3. And what does it say in chapter 3? Well, at least in the last part, tell, Paul tells us that the Christian has two bafflingly kind and incredibly powerful resources to draw on for life in this world with God. And those true resources which will infallibly meet our most basic needs if we let them are, one is love, which is so deep, that it is literally beyond our ability to fully know it and understand it. The other resource that we have available to us is a power at work within us. God, who is able to do abundantly more, says Paul, than we can ask or we can even imagine. And we can imagine a lot. And God's able to do more than that. And He is at work within us so that we can live lives together as his church that will bring him glory. That's what he says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. He's pouring his power into us, his unfathomable power into us to bring himself glory in the church. Why is that important to understand and to live? Well, as you well know, 
In the world apart from God, the world that you and I were born in and that we inhabited for however much of our lives we experienced before we were born from above, everyone's life is marked by insufficiency and scarcity and competitive self-absorption in all manners and all areas of our lives. Sometimes that insufficiency is physical. There's not enough food in the house. There's not enough house. There's, uh, there's not enough clothing on our backs to stay warm in the winter. Or Sometimes all of our physical needs are taken care of and the insufficiency is less obvious. It lies deeper. Whether there's plenty of material goods in the house or not, there's always spiritual and emotional insufficiency. And because of that, there's always some level of pain. People live with terrible pain and terrible suffering. At the most basic level, at the first sort of face of our brokenness in this world is at the area of our feelings. And our feelings are are just rubbed raw all the time by the things that are happening to us. And we begin to then take that out on others. Um, And we always start with the people that are closest to us. Now, that's just how life is. Right now, we're at a moment in history where everybody wants to talk on Facebook and Instagram and, and whatever about their pain. And they, they, we've kind of almost got this pain Olympics going on. Who has the greater pain? Because that's how you get status in this society. But what, what nobody seems to realize is that everybody has been carrying quite a load of pain for quite a long time. And it's not just this generation, it's generations before. I think about my, my grandparents and my great-grandparents and the, the, the stories of their lives that I know, and you probably have the same thing when you think about your people. The, what I know indicates a life of tremendous pain. And, and pain very often at the level of feelings. And so, so then we, we, we take that out on the people that are closest to us. And so in our families, we very often have families that are organized around the pain of one or more members who is acting out of that pain. You know, you can't, you, we just can't live this way with mom being this way or with dad being this way or I don't know what to do with this child. And, and so we have this, this terrible situation where we have a, 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 our, our families are sources of pain. And our feelings have become twisted and become, and and that constantly deepens our brokenness. Many people in this room right now basically live like that. They live in that condition. That the place that God intended for your emotional and spiritual well-being, the family, whether that's your family of origin or your marriage, has failed you and has left you deeply wounded and perhaps angry. And you don't know how to get out. And as a result of that woundedness and anger, just think about it. If you hit your thumb with a hammer, what are you thinking about for the next week? That thumb, right? And every time you forget about it, you touch something and it reminds you. Well, our hearts, our spirits get that way as well. And so you don't know how to get out of it. And as a result, you're insecure and you're shrill and you're shrieky or you're controlling, 
and you're fearful, or you're angry and you're volatile, or you're morose and withdrawn and depressed, because the people in your life that God put there to nurture you and to do you good did not do their job. And the reason they didn't do their job is because they've been too obsessed with themselves and their pain to pay attention to you. And what you may not realize is how much you are dishing out on other people as you go. And what your family has communicated to you is something like this. There's something wrong with you, and therefore I reject you, which is the most painful and damaging thing that can happen to a person. And God comes along, and God says, you know what? There is something wrong with you, and I love you, and I will heal what's wrong with you if you'll walk with me. God comes along and says, I have a vision of you as you will be. And it's whole and beautiful and restored. I have a vision of you. And it's good. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to do you good and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. And you can base your life and rest your whole self on my vision of you, says God, and my total sufficiency for you because I love you and because you are precious and honored in my sight. You know, in Japan, there's, a, there's an ancient art called kintsugi. And the story goes uh, that there was a, a samurai lord who accidentally broke his favorite tea bowl, which was imported from China. And this would have been in the 1300s sometime. And so he sent it back to China to be repaired. And when it came back, he looked at it and he said, this looks awful. He did not like the repairs at all. And so he disassembled it again and he glued it back together with a glue that's infused with gold powder and Kintsugi was born. And in the restoration of that which is broken, there is a beauty which is greater than any beauty that it had before it was shattered. If you are in Christ, you are God's Kintsugi. You can rest in His vision of you as whole and gloriously restored, which is rooted in His love and His power, and you can live your life as though that is true of you because it is true of you, it is becoming true of you, and it will be true of you. And so what happens then is you get this settled, secure, inner peace that makes it possible to be and to do what Paul talks about in, Philippians, or in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. You can now become a person of gentleness, a person of absolute humility, a person of patience, a person who bears with others. And you can do that because it's your brokenness and your pain and your self-obsession that keeps you from being gentle and humble and patient and a person who bears with the problems of others. You can't be that way because you're constantly afraid of what's going to happen to you if you do. What will it cost you, you wonder? Can I handle it? And so you make little attempts at it and you go, oh, that's heavy. You know, um, 
uh, everybody knows that Timothy and Michelle moved, and, and you know, it's one of those things where um, I wanted to help, and we did do some help, and there were others who did a lot more, and, uh, and thank you. I think Mark said he had to go to a baseball game, but I think he's actually laying in bed moaning, I, because he stayed there for the whole duration, worked really hard. But, um, but you know, the, 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 here's the problem. I've got to take care of me, too, right? I've got stuff that needs to be done. And so I can't bear as much of a burden or spend as much time or anything else as I would like to because I'm always worried about me. Well, just take that and transition it to the spiritual. I can't be patient because I'm worried about what it's going to cost me and I need to take care of me. I can't be kind. I can't be gentle because I need to worry about me and what I'm trying to accomplish and what I'm trying to build. And God says, you know what, you can live your life in a different way now. I'll make you, I'll bear you up on eagle's wings, he says. I'll make you walk and not grow weary and run and not grow faint. I have unlimited resources at my disposal. And if you will just plug into me, I'll, I'll supply everything you need. I'll give you everything you need. So when you roll that burden of your whole identity onto God and you learn by experience about his love and his power, then you realize that you don't need to worry about you anymore. You have all the love and all the power you need to live abundantly. You can afford to be gentle and patient. You can afford to be humble and bear with one another. You can give up attacking people as a means of managing them or managing other relationships. You can, you can give up withdrawing from people and you can just stand still in love and pray for and work for the good of another person. And if others attack you, and they probably will, or they withdraw from you and they probably will, well, that's painful and it feels costly, but you are still in a place and a posture of abundance in God, even if other people are not doing right by you. You're still in a, a place of blessing, and you can then return blessing to them, even as they curse you. And you can love them and desire their good, even as they hate you, because their curses don't land on you, and their hate can't hurt you. You know, I'll tell you something that's interesting. I've, I've noticed it and others have noticed it too, is that when you can get yourself into a, a posture, into a position under God where you literally desire the well-being of people who are cursing you, that those things boomerang back on them and make their lives miserable. It's very odd, but it seems to be something, uh, a spiritual law of some kind. And so you can love these people. You can desire their good. Now, when it comes to your fellow believers who are also on this journey with you, uh, then of course you're going to want to interact with them from a posture of humility and gentleness and patience and long-suffering too. But there's something else there that strengthens your bond with them, and it also strengthens your duty to them. There is what Paul calls the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's a, a oneness that we share because we are each connected to Jesus Christ. And, and through Jesus, then, we are also connected to each other like branches are to a vine. And the life-giving sap that circulates through us is the Spirit of God who also circulates, so to speak, through Christ. And this causes us to bear spiritual fruit 
Now, why is this unity so important to God? Because it really is. It's really important to him. Well, Jesus answers that question in his high priestly prayer in John 17. And he gives two reasons, really, in that high priestly prayer. One is that our visible unity is proof to a hostile and skeptical world that Jesus is the real deal. And that's what Jesus says in John 17, 23. In other words, the world's watching us, and it's saying not, how are you treating the world, but how are you treating each other? And if you are treating each other with a supernatural love and patience and kindness and forbearance, and you're working very hard to keep the unity of the Spirit, which exists, you're, you're trying to maintain it, you're not trying to create it, it's there. You're trying to uncover it and, and, and show it off. Put it in its right place. Let it shine. It, and the world says, if, if you're not able to do that, why should we believe in your Jesus? But when the world sees us doing that, the world says what they said to the ancient Christians. Behold how they love one another. Behold how they love one another. Well, that's the first reason. It's that God literally hangs the success or failure of his uh, project for the world, and it won't fail. But it may, it may temporarily fail in certain places, and God just shuts those places down. But, but the, it, the whole credibility of everything God's doing hangs on whether or not you and I treat each other this way. It just absolutely does. That's what Jesus said. The second reason that this is so important to God is that it's because the, it's the nature of the triune God himself. And so in John 17, 22, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one as we are one, Father. Now, why is he saying that? Well, he's saying that because of what eternal life actually is. Eternal life is essentially the life of God poured into us. That's really what it is. By, and, and the only definition of eternal life that we get in the whole of the Bible is, and this is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And that knowing is a knowing of connectedness. It's a knowing like a husband and a wife know each other, biblically. And so, and so Jesus says, you know, to live is to be connected to us and to have our life, the triune God's life, flowing into you. There's actually a, a wonderful little book by a man named Henry Skugel that was based on a letter that he wrote to a friend who was really struggling to understand what true Christianity was. And, and it's called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And it's a wonderful little book. I bought seven copies, and I put them in the airlock. They're $5 a piece. And uh, so if you want to read it, it's, it's not very long, it's, but it's quite profound. And that life, then, is flowing into us. Well, what's that life like? Well, it's wonderful. It is beautiful beyond description. You see, our God is one God, right? We know that. But he eternally exists in three persons. Now, these three persons are equal in every way. They are each omnipotent. They are each omniscient. They are made of the same substance, the same God stuff. They are equal in dignity. 
And all of this comes from a very ancient creed called the Athanasian Creed. I told you one time about one of my heroes, a little black monk named Athanasius who was from uh, what is essentially now Sudan and, uh, or Somalia in, in, in the days of Jesus. And just after the days of Jesus, that was all an empire of Egypt. And, uh, and he is, was famous for holding on to the Trinity when the whole world and the whole church wanted to go another way and have Jesus be a creature and the Holy Spirit be who knows what. And Athanasius stubbornly stood, he, they almost killed him for it several times. He was exiled by the emperor several times. And somebody said to him one time, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. And Athanasius said, well, then Athanasius is against the whole world. And that's how he lived. But, but this Athanasian creed, I've got a, a portion of it here. L listen to what it says, read what it says. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being. For the Father is one person, and the Son is another, and the Spirit is another. But the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-eternal in majesty. What the Father is, the Son is, and so is the Spirit. Uncreated is the Father. Uncreated is the Son. Uncreated is the Spirit. The Father is infinite, the Son is infinite, the Holy Spirit is infinite. Eternal is the Father, eternal is the Son, eternal is the Spirit, and yet there are not three eternal beings, but one who is eternal. As there are not three uncreated and unlimited beings, but one who is uncreated and unlimited. Almighty is the Father, almighty is the Son, almighty is the Spirit, yet there are not three almighty beings, but one who is almighty. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, and yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. So we've got this, this, this community in God himself of three absolutely glorious, absolutely eternal, absolutely powerful, absolutely flawless, equal persons. And yet these three equal persons, who each possess a distinct will, delight to submit to and honor and glorify one another. They love to honor one another. They love to exalt one another. They delight to do the will of the other and to receive praise and honor and glory from one another for submitting. Now, think about that for a minute. In our world, who submits to who? The powerful lorded over the weak. The popular lorded over the unpopular. The rich lorded over the poor. Whatever race is on top in your particular area of the world, lords it over other races. And God comes along and says, we are literally all equal. And now we're going to start submitting to each other and glorifying each other, and honoring each other, and preferring the other over ourselves, and loving one another as sacrificially as an eternal, infinite being who has all power can possibly do. And that's our life. Listen to, listen to uh, I mentioned last week a, a, a conference, a pastor's conference that took place nine years ago. Listen to one of the speakers. 
God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit in a community of greater humility, servanthood, and mutual submission and delight than you and I can possibly imagine. God is three, yet God is one. God is one, and then he makes human beings in his image. Genesis says Adam and Eve were two, and the two became one flesh. Two and yet one. See, being made in the image of God gives us the capacity for oneness, which is more beautiful and richer by far than a single person. The Trinity means God is never lonely. God never has need. There is an enormous world of joy just within the Trinity, and then he makes us with that same capacity. The three are one, and one infinitely richer, better, deeper, more joyful than it would be if it were not for the three. And that's what we're made for. We lost this in the fall and when we left Eden. That was all about the loss of community, If you follow through in Genesis, you see a little phrase that keeps cropping up, east of Eden. We end up east of Eden. For Israel, of course, the east is where their enemies were. That's where wrongness and violence and hostility were. But we always long for Eden. We always long for that oneness. Out of this richness, God created human beings in his image. After the fall, the son came to earth and he prayed for his disciples. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And of course, that's us. And then he speaks these amazing words. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. Isn't that just unbelievable? And that's not all. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The three are one, and the one infinitely richer, better, deeper, and more joyful than it would be if it were not for the three. Community is lost, and that's what we're made for. We lost this in the fall when we left Eden. It was all about the loss of of community. And what does it cost God to pay for us to, to be a part of his fellowship? Well, the son says, I will leave heaven and come to earth. I will disadvantage myself. This is love. That is part of why Jesus says to his disciples, a new command I give to you, love one another. Why is this new? After all, that's an old, old command, love your neighbor. But of course, what's new is Jesus. Now in Jesus, we see God's love. He disadvantages himself so that that human beings can enter into the Trinitarian fellowship. In some way that we will never fully understand, Jesus said, I will leave the perfect oneness I have known for all eternity and become like a human being and take their brokenness upon myself, take their aloneness upon myself, take their death upon myself, take their God-forsakenness on myself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Father says, I will offer my Son, whom I love beyond words. I will see him broken. I will see him rejected. I will see him killed. His pain will be my pain. 
And the Spirit says, I will be poured out on earth in mostly silent and invisible ways. I will offer to lead and guide, never exalting myself, always pointing to the Son. To a large extent, the Spirit's promptings will be ignored or denied. The Spirit will be quenched. The Spirit will be grieved. The Spirit says, the price I will pay so that anyone who might can enter into our fellowship is this price. We have all been invited into the fellowship of love through the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit at enormous cost to every member of the Trinity. You see, the, the glory of the triune God is that, that, that Jesus came to reveal us to us is the beautiful humility of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they play an, uh, an eternal and glorious game with one another. It's a game of hot potato with their selfhood and their dignity and their glory. And, and the son is holding it for a minute. And he says, no, I'm going to toss it to the father. And the father holds it for a minute and says, no, look at my son. And the son looks at it and says, look at the spirit. And they, they just dance with one another throughout this glorious eternity. Now you and I are each distinct persons. We each have our own wills. We are equal in dignity and in worth. In Christ there is no Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. No one is, in their essence, better or more important than another person. So we've got the, the, the individuality down. And then God gathers us together into a church and he says, all right now, we're all going to play my favorite game from now on. We're going to play Trinity. I've secured your selfhood. It's safe. Now, give it away. Pour it out. Forget about it. Lay it down. It's okay. I've got your back. And the rest of chapter 4 and chapters 5 and 6 is God giving us the rules for the game of Trinity. And the first ground rule is that there is an essential unity which exists and which we have to guard. And it's based on God's favorite number. There is one Lord Jesus Christ who purchased your salvation. There's no other way in except through him. We all came through him. There's just one. There's only one way to be saved by him. That's by faith. There's one faith. There's one Lord. There's one faith. Every one of us who's truly in Christ has been incorporated into Christ by an act of saving faith. There's only one spiritual and invisible baptism that incorporates you into Christ, regardless of when and how the water was applied to your body or what you believe about the water being applied to your body. There's still that invisible fact that there's one baptism by the Spirit that brings us into Christ. There's one body, one true and visible church that's made up of all who are truly saved, whoever were saved, who will be saved, from Adam to the end of time, there's one church. It's the saved. And if you're in Christ, you're part of that one church. There's one Holy Spirit who indwells you and you and you and me. Just one spirit. And there's only one beautiful and ancient hope. Eternal life with God. And there is one God and Father of all. He's in charge of everything. He's over all. He's blessed all of us through his son, so he's through all. And he sent his spirit to dwell in us and fill us, so he's in all. 
And so if we are in Christ, this is the only way to live that makes sense. If you're really in Christ, the only thing that makes sense is to live the Trinitarian life in the Trinitarian fellowship with these people around you who are also living it. And the rules of the game is consider others as better than yourself. Honor one another. Submit to one another. Love one another. Do good to one another. You're not here for you. And yet you are here for you. Because God's going to take care of you. He's got you. So, you know, if you have a million bucks in the bank and somebody comes along and says, can I borrow 50 bucks? You say, you just have 50 bucks. I got plenty of money, right? We'll just translate that into every other area of your life. You've got a million bucks in the bank of time, of energy. You've got a million bucks in the bank for kindness and gentleness. You've got everything you need to just write whatever checks God brings in front of you. And then God sneaks in the back door and tops off the account again. And you find that you're not poorer, but richer. Let me close with this. Once again, this is from that conference. That's why Jesus says that when there is oneness in the body, the world will know. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me. It is not by accident that he said this, because that oneness, that community, is God's signature. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, may they be given the ability to out-argue all their foes. He doesn't say, may they be given the power to change culture. He doesn't say, may they all be given really cool worship services. The Trinitarian Fellowship is the foundation of the existence of that which is real. That which we've been invited into at great cost. And there's where we rest. Which brings me to the next wonderful statement by Dallas. The Christian, the Christ follower, the leader and the pastor in particular, restfully and joyously serves in the midst of the Trinity in action as Christ builds his church. So what God's inviting us into is a life that's strenuous, and yet it's not hard. Because he's providing all that's necessary for it to happen. And so we come in and we restfully and joyously do whatever it is that we can do, what God puts before us and says, hey, would you handle this for me? We go, sure, God, I'll sure give it my best. And we restfully and joyously serve. And we don't worry too much about, am I getting noticed? Am I getting honored? Uh, how hard is this? Does everybody notice how hard this is? I want to make sure that everybody knows how hard I'm working. We just say, no. I'm just here to restfully and joyously serve God in a self-forgetful way. And God himself, the Trinity, will build our fellowship. And it will be beautiful. And he will get all the credit. And he will get all the glory. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you. For you are my rock and my redeemer.